Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine and sponsored by Steer. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Hi, I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. I will be out in the field working on some special coverage. So our editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman, has decided to join us and take over the show for me today. But first, I want to discuss our latest issue of Shell Magazine. Another great issue and another great cover. You will never guess who we were able to catch up with and discuss a little bit about the Permian Basin area. There's an area out there called Alpine High, and we were able to get an exclusive story from Steve Keenan with Apache Corporation, who was the main, main person behind discovering Alpine High uh, in the Permian Basin area and uh, New Mexico area. So if you're interested in in that, this is a story that you don't want to miss. Uh, and if you're interested in reading the latest issue of Shell Magazine, please go to shellmag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com to read all all about Steve Keenan, the main person behind Alpine High. And now it's time to bring on the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It sure is. So, you know, we have, uh, there's a lot going on in energy once again. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion with what is really going on, gas prices, with gas prices, with oil prices, with LNG, with um, all different, I mean, <laughs> policy, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a mess with confusion. It, yeah, it so, really is. So I want you to try to break it down for us so we can kind of uh, grab what's, get a handle on what's happening. The Energy Information Agency just released another projection that the U.S. shell production will set another record in March. So how many records has this been now? And it, it just seems so hard to keep up with record for this and net exporter for that and net exporter for this. And yeah, so. no, I know it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. It, uh, the last uh, year and a half or so, it seems like every month has been a new record. And I think that may actually be the case. Uh, certainly the last three months have been new all time production records uh, for the United States. And now, um, uh, the shale, and it's all driven by shale production uh, on, on crude oil. And, and you know, we're going to have 12 million barrels per day. Uh, and, and so that's the first time we've ever crossed that threshold. Uh, we were at 11.7 as recently as November. So in three months, that, that, that will mean in just three months that the U.S. industry is going to have increased overall production by 300,000 barrels a day. So you can see what that pace is. That pace is is on pace to add uh, well over another million barrels per day of overall production to the U.S. Uh, market uh, in 2019, which is pretty incredible. It is. And, and it's also interesting because for the past month or so, prices for crude have just, you know, been they've not been stable either. So no. with WTI <laughs> being back up around fifty seven dollars for this week. 
you know, what is your thoughts on, will we see this continue to rise in the upcoming months? Have we plateaued? You know, one of our, um, our energy minutes, which has got Commissioner Ryan Sitton, does a daily dose so people can really get informed. Hopefully our listeners go to our social media and grab it. Uh, but it's always interesting to hear your, uh, you know, your thoughts as far as an outlook. Well, I, you know, I don't think we've quite plateaued yet. I, if you remember the first of the year, I said I thought we'd get back up into the mid-50s and even the high 50s but in the first quarter of this year, but probably not, you know, go above 60. And I think, I think that's probably still kind of accurate. Um, I, I do think the overall inertia in the market is in favor of slowly rising crude prices, at least for now. Um, but, you know, it, again, it just we're, we're so dependent on what OPEC and Russia choose to do in their in their big export limitation deal every six months. And so when they meet in, in April to try to agree to new export levels for the second half of this year, uh, that will have a major impact on what prices do going forward from that point forward. So um, right now, uh, the situation is pretty strong, but. Uh, when you're adding this much production every month to the U.S. Uh, uh, overall production, uh, you know, that crowds the market uh, even more and puts more pressure on these OPEC countries to cut even further. And some of them, uh, you know, are already yelling and squealing uh, about the current export levels. So, you know, it's it's getting to be a fairly tight situation. And I, I think, um, you know, later this year, we're going to see some fallout from uh, this this uh, rapidly rising production here in the U.S. Interesting. Uh, changing gears a little bit, Chevron Chemical announced plans this week that they were going to build a $6 billion petrochemical plant in Orange area this week. Another indication, of course, that the ongoing manufacturing boom along the Gulf Coast. So tell me about the oil and gas industry and how it's driven all of these billions of dollars into new investment here recently in the in the past couple of years. Oh, yeah, it's just incredible. I, I, there, there's been more than uh, the Chemical Council, the U.S. Chemical Council, put out a report mid-year last year uh, calculating something over $300 billion in new investments in, in petrochemical facilities in the United States since 2012. Uh, that's just just amazing, and it's all driven by the, the abundance of, of natural gas in these shale plays and the low prices that is produced. And and so all these manufacturers, it's not just chemical companies; it's fertilizer companies and plastics companies and steel companies and all these different kinds of manufacturing processes that use natural gas or or oil and and oil byproducts in their processes. Are coming back to America, and 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 we have added several hundred thousand new manufacturing jobs in this country just over the last two years. Uh, it's it's one of the most extraordinary uh, economic renaissances uh, we've ever experienced in this country, and and it would not have been possible. Everyone needs to remember this when you hear all these people wanting to ban hydraulic fracturing. It would not have been possible without shale, oil, and gas. And the only way to get that shell on the gas out of the ground is horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. So, you know, uh, people people want to demonize fracking uh, all they want to, but the reality is it's an amazing economic generator for this country. 
And exactly, and we should all remember that, that we are very blessed as a result of the shell plays going on in the United States. And until the world starts making a change, which, you know, that's the other interesting thing is you don't really see it in the other parts of the world. It's just the United States that everybody expects to, you know, keep it in the ground right. movements. And But, you know, what about the rest of the world? If you're so worried about the environment, shouldn't we be saying, well, what about uh, China and what about India, which are huge polluters of the planet? Till they get reeled in, I'm not so sure I'm willing to see what, uh, you know, keeping it in the ground movement here in the United States. That's not going to work for me. <laughs> you know, well, no, it's not going to work for the economy either. You know, we just we're too reliant on it. And it's just uh, too much of an economic generator for us to do without. Exactly. Well, David, you are going to take on the show uh, for me as I am going to head out to an event and cover it uh, remotely. So look forward to hearing your show. And uh, I'm sure you're going to do a great job for us. Okay, safe travels. And with that, we do have to take a quick break. When we return, David Blackman will be your host for today's and the Oil Patch Radio Show. And we'll be right back. In the Oil Patch Radio Show is proud to bring you this week's Energy Minute produced by shalemag.com. Here's Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your current industry update. This is Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your Energy Minute. As the United States prepares for the 2020 elections, one issue getting attention is where energy will come from and who pays for it. However, our energy consumption at home is relatively flat. Unlike India, the fastest growing energy market in the world. Last year, India's oil consumption grew by 200 145,000 barrels per day, which accounted for 14% of the growth of the entire world. As its population continues to move to urban areas, India is expected to add up to 6 million barrels per day more over the next 20 years. This growth is so significant that Saudi Arabia has committed to invest $100 billion in the country's oil and gas business, including $44 billion in a new refinery that will be one of the largest in the world. This is Ryan Sitton, and that's your Energy Minute. Listen to In the Oil Patch Radio and keep up with the oil and gas industry online at shalemag.com. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. Hi, this is Kim Bilotto, host of In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Do you have questions on global warming, about seismicity, air quality, water issues? What's OPEC? What's OPEC Plus? Oil prices and gas prices? You probably have a bunch of questions. And now there is a place for you to go and ask your questions and get answers. Starting every second Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. we will have a live call-in show in which John Tatera, the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, will be joining me in studio to answer all your questions. So be sure to take advantage of getting your most important oil and gas questions answered live and join us on the show. The call-in live line is 210 526-3656. Again, the call-in live number is 210-526-3656. 
be sure to call in at 2 p.m. If you want more information how to call in live or the phone number again, be sure to email us at radio at shalemag.com. That's radio at s-h-a-l-e-m-a-g.com. Or just go to our Facebook page in the Oil Patch Radio Show. You'll find the information there as well. Would love to talk to you every second Saturday at 2 p.m. So be sure to call in. I'd love to get your questions answered. So be sure to call in at area code 210-526-3656. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com to learn more. Hello, welcome to Inbo Oil Patch Radio. I'm David Blackman, editor of Shale Magazine, sitting in this week for your regular host, Kim Bellotto. Our guests today are Dak Belcher and Brent Greenfield with the Cornerstone Government Affairs Firm based in Washington, D.C., but with offices strategically located all over the country. Jack and Brent are in the company's Houston office, and they're going to take us on a journey today through the wonderful world of energy policy in our nation's capital. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Jack and I go way back. Uh, Jack, I'm pretty sure we met first uh, in either 96 or 97 out in Washington. Uh, is that about right? Sounds right. Yeah, and uh, we've we've worked together on uh, a ton of different issues over the years that uh, impact the oil and gas industry in Washington and elsewhere. And uh, I just uh, couldn't think of anyone who knows more about the process up in Washington of what's going on with uh, energy policy these days than these two gentlemen. So uh, I want to start, guys, by uh, giving you an opportunity to introduce yourselves, give a little background to our listeners, and then also talk about your firm and, and the kinds of services it offers. So uh, whichever of you wants to start it off, feel free. Sir, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'm Jack Belger. Uh, I have a, over 25 years of experience in energy and energy policy, um, and uh, in my, throughout my career, I've worked in Texaco and the gas marketing group in the newly deregulated gas markets. Uh, I was with Heart Energy Publications as a correspondent and as the uh, editorial director. I worked for the Independent Petroleum Association of America uh, doing government relations and communications. And David, that's when I met you, is, is that when I was at the IPAA, I believe. Right, right. I was the uh, staff director for the House. Uh, Energy and Mineral Resources Subcommittee, which is the subcommittee that has jurisdiction over oil, gas, and mining, um, and uh, was the uh, manager of regulatory affairs and policy for Shell's uh, America's uh, E&T operations, and then went into the consulting business and have consulted with 
energy firms, upstream, downstream, midstream, for the last 10 years, and uh, recently joined uh, Cornerstone and started the Cornerstone Energy Solutions Group. I'll kick it off to Brent. Thanks, Jack, and thanks, David. Honored to be here with you on the program today. And uh, just to follow up on what Jack had to say, uh, I've been working in the uh, energy and prior to that campaign and government world for the past 20 years. It's great to be back home in Houston working in energy. I've spent the last nine years here uh, working in that space and in the maritime and energy space with a major focus on offshore oil and gas. Uh, prior to coming back to Houston, as I mentioned, it was in the campaign and government world, having worked on the Bush presidential campaign in Austin, and then doing a couple of stints in Washington, working at the White House Counsel's Office and then later as a legal advisor for the Federal Communications Commission chairman. And uh, here at Cornerstone uh, Energy Solutions, continuing to work obviously in the energy space, um, working on um, matters upstream, midstream, downstream segment, um, providing strategic policy management guidance on uh, research analysis, communication support. So again, delighted to be here on the program with you today. Well, great, you know, and, and I wanna, do want to spend the rest of this segment talking about uh, Cornerstone. It's uh, it's a big firm, obviously, and you guys have uh, a, a company to provide support not just in the energy space, I assume, but also with other industries uh, in in other parts of the economy. And just so, just uh, give us some background on on the kind of services Cornerstone offers to its clients. So Cornerstone is is a was founded in 2002. It's a very large government affairs firm uh, that has uh, offices around the country in several states. So it, it has over 80 people in the firm and, and is involved with a whole host of different industries, um, energy being one of them. Uh, the um, cornerstone approach is really to uh, bring in a, a, a real team approach to, uh, to government affairs, strategic communications, uh, they've recently started, uh, expanded their communications firm as well. We came into Cornerstone to start a group called Cornerstone Energy Solutions, and that is to provide those services like federal and state government relations, strategic communications, and public affairs work, but also expand into different areas, including strategic advisory services and business consulting. So some of those services include issues management, compliance with environmental social governance uh, programs, sustainability, risk management, and we've also brought in capabilities to do financial analysis, asset valuation, and advisory services in energy markets. So our Cornerstone Energy Solutions is designed to provide a whole slate of services for the energy business, and that's across the energy spectrum upstream, downstream, midstream, renewables, electric power, all of those areas. That's fantastic. I, you know, one of the services you talked about was strategic communications. And I, you know, I, I know that you and I have talked about it a lot over the years, Jack, but and we have about a minute and a half left here in this segment. Well, talk a little bit about the challenges you see the energy industry facing, uh, particularly the fossil fuel industry. Uh, facing as we go into this future here, you know, it's it's a business that's always had trouble really communicating effectively, and uh, you know, just kind of talk about the the strengths and weaknesses you see uh, in that space. 
Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's very difficult um, in, in, if you're in the fossil energy space, oil and gas, um, because of the um, of, of the really target that's on the industry right now. All, all the all the movements to to go fossil free, um, and so communication is absolutely essential. Um, that communication really needs to be um, for individual companies, but for the industry as a whole to be making people aware of the, the fact that we're gonna need fossil energy way into the future. The tremendous role that natural gas and now natural gas exports can have in addressing climate change, addressing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, addressing energy poverty. Um, and that there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of promise in the future of natural gas and fossil fuels. But, you know, that's that's a tough message. And, and when you have Hollywood and and um, academia and a whole lot of institutions that are trying to convince the public to get out of fossil energy and all of this divestiture, um, these divestiture movements, um, communications is going to be absolutely essential. If you look at these pipeline projects and other projects that are being targeted, strategic communications are absolutely essential to being able to continue to operate and continue to achieve our social license to operate. Well, thank you for that. When we return, we'll get into a discussion about energy-related legislation that we might or might not see. And you're listening to In the All Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Plan your next meeting or event at Victoria College's Emerging Technology Complex, home to the -the state-of-the-art Conference and Education Center, conveniently located between Houston and Corpus Christi. The center hosts meetings, educational workshops, and banquets for up to 300 people with the latest in technology amenities and ample parking. Let their professional meeting planners make your next event a success. For more information, go to conferenceinvictoria.com. Once again, that's conferenceinvictoria.com. Welcome back to End of All Patch Radio. I'm David Blackman, editor of Shell Magazine, sitting in this week for Kim Bellotto. Our guests this week are Jack Belcher and Brent Greenfield with the Cornerstone Government Affairs Firm. Gentlemen, uh, I wanted to get into uh, discussion in this segment of the potential topics uh, to be included in significant energy bills this session, uh, recognizing that we do have a divided Congress right now, but uh, you know, I know that Senator Murkowski and others have talked about some of some of the things that may or may not uh, be included in energy bills that they try to push forward in this session. And um, I, I know Senator Murkowski in particular has talked about things like cybersecurity, smart grid-related legislation, and modernization of the grid as possible areas to address this year. Do you think that's where we're headed? Do you have other things that uh, are coming up on your radar? What's going on out there? Well, I mean, obviously, we are in a very different situation in this Congress with a democratically controlled House, and so the emphasis is going to be uh, very different. So there are going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of oversight. There are going to be many, many hearings about climate change, uh, and in those hearings, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on the role that uh, fossil fuels um, are alleged to play in 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 all of that. So 
that is going to be a big focus. At the same time, however, there are some areas that you mentioned um, that where there might be some opportunity to, uh, to, to achieve some consensus. And um, Senator Murkowski has been talking about, uh, along with, uh, um, you know, in the Senate, along with um, Chairman Frank Pallone of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, about some of the same kinds of things. Um, uh, the, the whole issue of the grid and how to modernize the grid. Um, that is a big topic in both houses, and there's there's some potential for consensus around that. Infrastructure in general, when you talk about the need to modernize uh, our nation's infrastructure um, in an infrastructure bill, if there's an opportunity for an infrastructure bill, um, there could be some opportunities to address some things like cybersecurity, like workforce development, energy efficiency, pipeline replacement, again, grid modernization, those are all areas where there could be some consensus uh, in the energy space. Um, having worked in Capitol Hill, even when you don't have divided government, it is very difficult to get an energy bill, especially a comprehensive energy bill, through Congress. It can take several Congresses to do that. Uh, so uh, given the nature of the divided government and, and just the tone uh, in, in, you know, the discourse in Washington right now, I don't think it's very likely that we would see anything comprehensive. We could see some language moving through on a larger bill, go through on something like, like, uh, infrastructure or something like that, where you have, uh, grid modernization, uh, or some of these other subjects, um, mainly for industry, I think in this Congress, especially in the house, the oil and gas industry is, is really going to be playing, you know, defense, and yeah. it's going to it's going to be under assault, I think, uh, in a lot of these hearings. Yeah, and David, we this is Brent here. We've already seen, you know, a slate of bills um, introduced um, along those lines, you know, that would restrict access to to American energy. But uh, as Jack said, given the dynamics and in Congress and and with the White House, um, we, we certainly don't expect to see those more controversial initiatives, and, you know, get much in the way of traction over the next couple of years. Yeah, Kim and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and you know what I basically said, and you can tell me if you agree or not, is that is that what we're going to see mainly is is the the House passing bills and sending them over to the Senate, where Mitch McConnell will either laugh at them and throw them away or give them a vote just to put. The opposition on the record of supporting such crazy things, and and then the Senate will pass bills and send them to the House, where exactly the same will happen in reverse, and 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 that of course creates gridlock uh, in the federal government. And um, you know, when you look at it from the oil and gas industry's perspective, uh, historically gridlock hasn't really been all that bad for fossil fuels. Frankly, uh, you know. Um, uh, the attitude, I think, for most in the energy space who aren't looking for subsidies uh, is that uh, the, the main thing that federal government can do uh, in the energy space is mess things up. Does that sound about right, or, or do you disagree? I think that's what you're going to see. I think you're going to see bills, you know, getting passed out of, of the House and going over dead on arrival in the Senate and vice versa. Um, and and uh, you're going to have this uh, these rough hearings for the oil and gas sector in the House, but that's really all they're going to be is tough hearings. So I think you'll continue to see regulatory reform and things along, you know, uh, improvements, I think, to our regulatory 
system. And um, so that's where most of the policy will actually take place. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to have to take another break. Uh, but when we return, we'll continue talking about uh, the process out in Washington and potential energy legislation that may or may not be on the horizon. And uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy. Welcome back to In the All Patch Radio. I'm David Blackman, editor of Channel Magazine, sitting in this week for Kim Bellotto. We, we took a break, uh, uh, the last commercial break. Uh, we were talking about the process in Washington. It's really important to understand how the federal government works and how bills do and don't get passed in Washington. And what, one of my favorite sayings from, from a lobbyist, one of the first lobbyists I met uh, over in Austin, and worked with for many years. Um, one of the first things he said to me when I was first getting started out in, in that role at, at Burlington Resources back in those years uh, was that there there are a hundred ways to kill a bill, but only one way to get it passed. And and so the the process is set up and constitutionally and just by with all the committees and the hearings that you have and all the competing interests that weigh in on everything. The the process really is set up to mitigate against actually passing new bills into law. Um, and, and Jack, from your years of experience on the Energy Committee, I know that, uh, for example, you were you were on the Senate Energy Committee when we were working on the the, uh, the Royalty and Kind Act in 98-99. And really, that, that was a tiny little bill, <laughs> just a really microscopic piece of how things work within the Interior Department. And we we agonized and went back and forth on that bill uh, with all the competing interests in it and, and all the different political players for, for a couple of years there. You know, just kind of give the audience an idea, and you too, Grant, uh, just give the audience an idea from your experience just exactly how difficult it really is to get a new law passed in Washington. Well, it, it, there are literally thousands of bills introduced every Congress in both the House and Senate. And, you know, very small percentage of those ever become law. A lot of them become law when they're bundled together or they're attached to a kind of legislative vehicle uh, like a funding bill that needs to, that has to be passed. So there are opportunities to add what they call riders onto those bills. Uh, Comprehensive legislation like a comprehensive energy bill uh, is something that can take several Congresses to pass. 
And so you you go through a process where House and Senate pass bills, and then most years they don't, but even when they do, they go to conference, and that conference uh, can often fail, especially when you have uh, a divided House and Senate in terms of political party control. So I was in a situation where we, well, I was in one Congress where we went to the conference and it never, nothing ever came out of the conference. The conference report never arrived. So there was no consensus. The next Congress, they actually did achieve it, but when it went back out, it has to be voted on by both houses again. And it was one vote short in the Senate, so it failed again. And it wasn't until the next Congress that something actually passed. Uh, when an energy bill passes, it's usually because the nation is facing some kind of a crisis. And when the 2005 energy policy bill passed, uh, we were looking at a situation where we had we were going to be dependent on foreign governments to to provide us, foreign countries to provide us with our natural gas needs through LNG imports in the future. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Funny, isn't that wild? Funny to think about that now, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Um, so here we are in 2019, and I read this morning that Texas had the largest uh, oil production in history last year, and we are now this oil exporting country. I was in I was in uh, Port Arthur for the for the announcement on final investment decision for Golden Pass LNG export yeah. facility. There, there are a lot of great, amazing things going on right now in energy, uh, and uh, in terms of how those things impact energy policy um, is um, it, 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 it's it's hard to say. Um, uh, right now, supporting you know a policy of energy dominance, the path that we're on right now in terms of our own ability to provide for our own needs and export, you would think would be it would be natural uh, for continued support there. But there are a lot of folks out there that don't want to see us continue on that path, and so we're going to be looking at. You know, uh, what we're going to be looking at legislation that would um, try to limit, you know, and uh, we're going to see actions continue on hydraulic fracturing. So there are a lot of vulnerabilities out there. But in terms of, of uh, legislation, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to get anything through. And uh, when you do, there's, there's usually some kind of a, of a national situation, uh, national strong need, I won't say emergency, but but on the verge of an emergency. Yeah, and, and that's a, such a great point. And, and, you know, when you talk about, we talked, you mentioned earlier Congressman Cologne talking about a, a bill to address uh, modernization of the, of the power grid, which is, a, which is an issue that would cost the latest estimate I've seen to fortify the, the electricity grid uh, against an attack a, a nuclear attack uh, in which a bomb was exploded in the atmosphere over the country, and the the impulse from that bomb knocked out the power grid for weeks or months. Um, the, the price tag on that's thirty to forty billion dollars. Uh, the last I saw to, to fortify the grid, yeah. modernize it. And the Congress has been kicking that issue down the road uh, for at least ten to, to at least ten different sessions of Congress in this entire century, really. Is it? The, the, the issue first came up in the late 90s. And, um, you know, and, and of course, back then, the, the cost would have been 5 or $6 billion. Now it's 40 But we're not, we don't have an emergency. And the problem with waiting for an emergency on that issue is that the emergency and that emergency, a lot of people are going to die. 
because they don't have power for months months at a time, and people start dying, literally. Um, So, you know, it's just one of the really bad aspects of our government and the way the system works, and I'm sorry, but I have to go to a break. Sorry about that filibuster. We'll come right back and and talk about uh, the the five-year plan for the Department of Interior and and the critical nature of offshore production to our nation's energy picture. I'm David Blackman, and you're listening to In the All Patch Radio. Hi, this is Kim Bilotto, host of In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Do you have questions on global warming? How about seismicity, air quality, water issues? And now there is a place for you to go and ask your questions and get answers. Starting every second Saturday of the month at 2 p.m., we will have a live call-in show in which John Tatera, the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, will be joining me in studio to answer all your questions. So be sure to take advantage of getting your most important oil and gas questions answered live and join us on the show. The call-in live line is 210-526-3656. Again, the call-in live number is 210-526-3656. Welcome back to In the Old Patch Radio. I'm David Blackman, editor of Shell Magazine, sitting in this week for Kim Bellotto, who couldn't be with us this week. Our guests are Jack Belcher and Brent Greenfield. Uh, and we've been talking about energy policy uh, in 2019 uh, on tonight's show. And we want to close off the discussion uh, for this program with by talking about the critical nature of oil and gas production in the offshore uh, out in the waters of the Gulf of Mexico and other uh, waters uh, offshore of the United States of America and how critical that is to the energy picture here in the United States. Jack and Brent are both real experts in this area. And uh want to kick it off with, with just first talk about, uh, I know, Brent, that we're in the process of, of doing another, what, what the Department of Interior calls a five-year plan, for offshore development here in the United States. Talk about that a little bit and how it works. Absolutely. And if I could maybe just provide a little bit of context, the the Energy Information Administration just recently, last month, put out their annual energy outlook for 2019. And what they show is what we all know, which is demand for energy is only going to increase in the coming years. And petroleum and natural gas combined specifically are going to be contributing more to our nation's energy consumption portfolio in 2050 than it did last year. Um, so for all the talk about renewables and energy efficiency, which are important, it's clear that access to American oil and gas resources is going to continue to be key for decades to come. And there's obviously no question that onshore development in places like the Permian out in West Texas and New Mexico has been a driving factor to our nation being the world's leader now in both oil and natural gas production. Um, but it's also critical to understand the vital role that U.S. offshore activity is playing as well. Uh, and to that point, the Gulf of Mexico uh, remains the work for, workforce of offshore development in the United States. It's responsible for 16% of the nation's crude oil production, uh, reaching a record in November, 1.9 million barrels per day. And that's forecast to increase uh, to 2.4 million barrels per day in 2022. But when we look ahead and we see that our offshore waters include 
an estimated 90 billion barrels of oil equivalent and nearly 330 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, uh, which under current federal policy from the last administration, the majority of those resources are inaccessible to leasing. Um, we see why the offshore discussion is so important. And you mentioned the five-year plan. So our offshore policy is now being reexamined, uh, consistent with an executive order in 2017, uh, which, among other things, directed the Interior Department to evaluate expanded opportunities to access American oil and gas in federal waters. And so the Interior Department is currently in the middle of that evaluation through what is known, as you said, by industry as the five-year plan process. And what that process is going to do is that's going to determine what areas are available for leasing starting later this year through 2024. And the important thing with this program is the way it's set up under the law is that any areas that are not actually included in the plan cannot be considered for leasing access during this five-year plan period unless Congress passes a law authorizing the, such a lease sale or if the Interior Department begins this multi-year process all over again and writes another five-year plan that would include other areas. So it is key, the decisions that are made over the coming months with the release of a proposed leasing program and then ultimately a final leasing program are going to be very impactful. Industry is paying very close attention and is very keen on seeing areas outside the central and western Gulf and in Alaska's Cook Inlet included especially opportunities for expanded access in the Gulf, but also in the Atlantic and the Alaskan Arctic and Pacific. And expanded access in the Gulf is of particular interest because there's already existing infrastructure nearby in the Gulf to support activities further east offshore, and the area is well known. And there's concern within and outside of industry that absent new opportunities in the Gulf, we're going to see more and more investments in offshore increasingly go to places like Mexico, Brazil, and elsewhere, as the fields in the central and western Gulf deplete over time. Um, and then on the Atlantic in particular, which has been in the news quite a bit as people await to see whether that region will be included in this plan, you know, that region is estimated to hold 11 billion barrels of oil equivalent. That's a mean estimate, a, a big number, but also a number that's likely even higher. And that's because we haven't had any seismic studies in the Atlantic since the 1980s. And when we look at the Gulf of Mexico experience, we saw estimates of recoverable oil increase 500%. Um, over the time in which new technologies were developed that allowed for more enhanced insight into our underwater geologic formations through the seismic studies. So the expectation is that if and when those studies are able to take place and there are permit decisions awaiting right now at the Interior Department uh, for the seismic studies, then those estimates of the 11 billion barrels uh, would, would, would likely go even higher. Yeah, you know, you talk about that uh, the fact that uh, you haven't even had, been able to run seismic out there since the 1980s to even do a reliable estimate. I, I remember working uh, on this issue, that very issue, um, in at the same time we were working on on the bill I mentioned a little while ago in 1998-1999. So this this is uh, something that's been lingering out there for a long, long time, and it's uh, even if you're not going to ultimately allow wells to be drilled and produced out there off the Atlantic Basin. Uh, it's in the country's interest. I don't think anyone can rationally argue that it is not in the country's interest to at least know, have some idea of what the potential is out there uh, for an eventuality. You know, someday down the road, if we're in an energy shortage, we may have a huge pocket of oil or natural gas sitting out there that's untapped. Uh, anyway, anybody want to comment on that? It, well, you know, it's 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 interesting because we're shooting seismic uh, for other purposes on right. the Atlantic right 
extract for the academic purposes to understand the geology of the region, for the purposes of understanding what the ocean floor is like in order to put offshore wind out there. So, so seismic is actually being acquired uh, in the Atlantic. It's only when it's for oil and gas uh, leasing uh, that the real opposition comes out for that seismic. So that's well, an interesting. And it's really telling. So I was just going to ask, when you look at the map of the Atlantic margin, we're really the only country that has not been exploring and, 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 and conducting these kinds of studies and looking at that opportunity um, in, in recent decades. It's, it's really, a, as much as anything, it's really a national security issue that uh, continues to go unaddressed because, as we talked about earlier, we're not in an emergency situation right now. Anyway, guys, really appreciate the discussion tonight. This has been excellent. We're going to have to wrap up now. Uh, but I really appreciate your time, and, and thank you for your expertise, and uh, wish you the best of luck down the road. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, David. And that's it for this week's uh, edition of In the Oil Patch Radio. I'm David Blackman, signing off. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.